After this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the Lord, their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me. And on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand, as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, There came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody, 
in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land of Egypt, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine." This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. 
Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zephaneth paneah and he gave him in marriage Eseneth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Eseneth, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you now for our time together this morning. Thank you for your word. Uh, Would you bless our time, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So thank you uh, both to uh, Abby and Meredith for reading those bigger chunks of scripture. Uh, And let me just say, let me apologize. Uh, I, like uh, some of you, uh, I was worshiping last night with, you know, 89,000 people. And so my voice is a little, a little worse for the wear, Uh, but we will, we will push through. So I apologize um, that I have this weird raspy thing going on. One of the challenges we face when we read well-known biblical stories, is that we can miss what the author really wants us to know because there's some part of the story that tickles our fancy. There's something there that we like and we latch on to it. And the Joseph story is rife with such texts and therefore it's rife with such opportunities. This past summer, I came across an article on a a Christian website that referred to Genesis chapter 38 and 39 as the Me Too chapters of the scriptures referring to the Me Too movement. Well, I'm fairly certain that Moses was not thinking of that movement 3,000 years ago as the Holy Spirit inspired him to tell us of both Judah and Tamar, and then Joseph and Potiphar's wife. 
Our text for this morning is not immune to such readings either. There are those within the church who are enamored with prophecy inasmuch as they believe it allows them to predict the future. Joseph then, and his ability to interpret dreams, scratches our predict the future itch. And so if we're not careful, we're going to look at Genesis 40 and 41 and go, oh, this is about dreams, this is about time the future, this is really cool. Now to be clear, Genesis 40 and 41 do tell us of the future not in the way we think. In Genesis 40 and 41, we see clearly how God works and how God will work to save and deliver the world that he has created. God is showing his hand and revealing for us a pattern of divine redemption. And you would think that would be enough, that we would be satisfied with understanding that in this story, we see how God's going to save His world. But we seem to forget that God is not as obsessed with financial markets and political intrigue and the identity of the Antichrist as we seem to be. Genesis 40 and 41, I think, can be summed up in the words you see in the bulletin on page 5 or on the screen in front of you in the big idea. And it's this. In a display of providential hesed, God saves the world through his chosen servant. In a display of providential hesed or covenant faithfulness, God saves the world through his chosen servant. So three points we want to make them this morning. First, demonstrate your trust in tangible ways. Demonstrate your trust in tangible ways. My guess would be that if I said to you, hey, do you trust God's providence for your life, you would say, oh, absolutely. I mean, even if we weren't in church on a Sunday morning, you would know as a Christian, yes, I'm supposed to at least give lip service to the fact that I trust God's providential care for my life. And yet, yet we are anxious. We are fraught with care. We worry. We do not sleep well. We cannot rest. We cannot cease with both hands trying to lay hold of whatever it is that we think is in our life that we're not quite sure we can trust God with. Joseph, in Genesis chapter 40, in a very subtle way, reminds us of what it looks like to actually trust the providence of God in your life. You see in the bulletin, in the outline, there are two ways in which he does it. Now at this point, and and let's note, again, we've said, uh, Moses tells this story so unbelievably well, but he's subtle when he does it. And we have to pay attention when he starts to use repetition and he repeats phrases and he alludes back to other texts but one of the things that uh, one of the the, the uh, things that keep showing up in the Joseph story are pits remember when his brothers find him and they decide hey we need to get here comes the dreamer let's get rid of him or they take his coat away from him and they throw him into a pit and then he's sold into slavery he goes to Potiphar's house 
And in uh, chapter 40, and again in chapter 41, we're reminded that Joseph, through no fault of his own, finds himself in a pit. Now, we love, as Americans, we love rags to riches story. But Joseph's story at this point is exactly the opposite. Joseph is going from one pit to another pit. But the one pit, interestingly enough, that Joseph avoids, if you'll allow me to channel some John Bunyan, is he avoids the pit of despair. Joseph never gets to the point where he thinks, I'm in this pit and doggone it, I just, I can't, I don't think I can trust the Lord with this anymore. When we come to Genesis chapter 40, and we come to verses 7 and 8, it's interesting, isn't it? Look look at verse 7, if you would. He asks Pharaoh's officers who are with him in custody of his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? Joseph has not stopped. uh, He hasn't stopped caring. We would expect, now we're going to get a little bit of this later in the speech. You would expect Joseph to go, hey, you think your face is downcast? Let me tell you my story. Let me tell you what happened to me. Now he's going to do that a little bit at the end. But when they say to him, verse 8, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. Joseph says, do not interpretations belong to God. And then Moses writes, please tell them to me. That's not what we would expect to read. What we would expect to read is this. Don't interpretations belong to God. But let me tell you something. Uh, Right now, God and I aren't really on great terms. Man, I was the favored son. And through no fault of my own, listen, it's not my fault that my family should be on Jerry Springer. They're a hot mess. And because my dad's an idiot and my half-brothers hate me, I get sold into slavery. And then I'm in Potiphar's house and everything's going great, except his wife, whose name I won't speak. She accuses me of assaulting her. And so now I'm here. So you know what? You want to talk about God? Great. Ah, God and I, we just, we're not really on speaking terms. But he doesn't say that, does he? No, he says, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. How do we know that we're trusting in God's providence? We know because we continue to use the gifts. We continue to exercise the calling that God has laid on our lives, no matter what our circumstances look like. I was reminded again, and I, 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 I wish, you know, sometimes you wish as a pastor, you'd save really great quotes for later. Uh, but I, 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 I'm going to use this one early and often. You know, the John Piper quote when he said, you know, the Lord is at any given time doing about 10 different, 10,000 different things in our lives. And I may be aware of three or four of them. Joseph either understands that there's more going on or he doesn't know, but he's he's still going to be obedient. He's still going to use the gifts and exercise the calling that God has given him. God has given him the ability to not only have dreams, but be able to interpret them. And so Joseph, beginning in verse 9, interprets the dreams of the chief cupbearer. And he interprets 
the dreams of the baker. Now, it's interesting, as chapter 40 ends, everything that Joseph has interpreted has come exactly true, just as he said it would. The chief cupbearer is restored to his position, verse 21. Verse 22, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. And then that dreaded conjunction, yet. The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. After two whole years, after two whole years. Now, again, if you're Joseph and you're looking for a reason to doubt God's providence, if you're looking for a reason to think, not only did the chief cupbearer forget me, but you know what? God has forgotten me as well. Having to stay in the pit for another two years would lead you to think, God, I don't know what you're doing, but it's pretty clear you have completely forgotten me. But he hasn't. It's interesting, isn't it, that there are three places in uh, the Joseph story in which we're told things relative to either Joseph's age or to time. Uh, we're told that he's 17 when he's sold into slavery. We're told that he has to wait two years after he interprets the cupbearer's dream before he is brought before Pharaoh. And then we're told in chapter 41 that he's 30 years of age when he is ascended to the number two position in Egypt. So in other words, there are 13 years in Joseph's life that he spent either in Potiphar's house or he spent in prison. 13 years. Joseph has to learn to wait. If you like to wait, would you please raise your hand? If you enjoy, as Matt, oh, you're lying. Yeah, you are. You'll know better, believe me. Last night, uh, the game is over. It's late. I know I have to preach. We lost. We just want to get out of this stadium. And you know what we had to do? Wait. And hear a bunch of annoying Michigan fans. Go, Blue. And one guy behind us said, yes, I wish you would. Just please go. And then we walked to the car, and we were coming out of the parking area. You know what we had to do? Wait. And then, I listen, I, I grew up in a county that wasn't, you know, uh, Douglas or Lancaster. I, I have a special place in my heart for these people, except when they come to Lincoln to drive. Because they don't. They just sit. It's like, I wish you would go. But they don't. You got to wait. Friends, we need to remember that in God's providence, what God does within us as we wait might be the thing that he's most focused on. And we have to trust 
in his timing as he is shaping us and whittling us and making us look more and more like Jesus in the process of our waiting. Joseph is taken into captivity at age 17. He's precocious. He's snotty. He's a brat. He's a tattletale. And in the 13 years between when he is sold into slavery and when he ascends to power in Egypt, God has done a tremendous work in his life that he couldn't do any other way. How do we show our trust in God's providence? We continue to use our gifts and our calling, even when it doesn't seem like it makes a bit of sense, and we wait. We trust that God's timing is perfect. We trust that God in his providence is doing something that we can't even see or imagine. We trust that what Paul says in Romans 8 is true. That God does indeed work all things to good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Secondly, then, let's channel your inner Rich Mullins. Channel your inner Rich Mullins. Now, if you don't know who Rich Mullins was, uh, he was a Christian musician. He was particularly popular when I was in college. Some of that was because I was going to a Christian college in Indiana, and Rich Mullins hailed from southern Indiana. His most famous song is probably Awesome God. I won't sing it for you uh, because I don't have a voice, and even if I did, it would hurt you for me to sing. But the words, the chorus goes like this. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. And in the first half of Genesis chapter 41, that is exactly what we see. Now, again, Moses is subtle in the ways that he shows us this. Moses is subtle in the ways in which he's going to show us how God is, in essence, low-key flexing throughout this entire story. Now, the Bible reveals the triune God to us. It doesn't just reveal our salvation, but it would be more accurate to say the Bible reveals to us that our God is a God who saves. And so in the first half of Genesis 41, we see God's character being revealed to us. And we see it through a most unlikely way. We see it through a very unusual uh, vessel. We see that God shows how awesome he is, that God shows that he is sovereign, that God shows there's nothing beyond his control or his ability in the dreams of a pagan king. That through the dreams of Pharaoh, God is doing his work. Now, one of the things that makes that particularly amazing is uh, if you became Pharaoh in Egypt, right? So... Uh, let's say this, uh, this morning, for the sake of argument, uh, that my brother Matt becomes Pharaoh at some point. Uh, you then need to know that in the Egyptian mind, Matt has now become a god. He's to be worshipped. He's one of many gods in Egypt. I mean, you have On, you have Ra, you have Isis. You have a plethora of gods, and yet, Pharaoh becomes one of the gods. He is to be worshipped. And so here is one of the great gods of Egypt 
who has a dream. He knows the dream. He remembers the dream. In fact, he's had two dreams. He calls in his wise men. He calls in his magicians. And he says to them, listen, here are the dreams. What do they mean? And we got nothing. We got nothing. Friends, if you want to see a powerful individual get really anxious and really antsy, tell them that you don't have the information that they want. Make it clear to them that the thing that is most urgent in their mind is something that is beyond their grasp. See, not only is God revealing how he's going to save the world through his chosen servant, Joseph, he's also reminding Pharaoh that he's just a man. Contrary to what the Egyptian mind might think, he is not God. God humbles the powerful. Now, that's not the last time we're going to see this in the Bible. In fact, when we get to the other individual in the scriptures who's really good at interpreting dreams, namely the prophet Daniel, we're going to see that he has to deal with three different kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and then Darius. And we're going to see how it is that God again uses dreams to humble the proud and yet at the same time to give himself glory and to point the attention of those who are watching to his chosen servant. And so I wonder, when we see how it is that God is able to humble, when we see how it is that God is able to demonstrate clearly just how short the arms are of this powerful man, this man who believes himself to be a God, I wonder, why do we get so distraught and so worked up over things like, I don't know, politics? Why do we go looking in the Bible for texts that will assure us that our guy or a guy from a particular political party is going to be restored to office? Do we really think that God is not sovereign unless a particular party is in office? Do we really think that whoever is in office at the time, whether it's a guy we like or a guy we don't like, do we really think that God is not able to bring about his will? That God somehow needs our help? Are we really that arrogant to think that American politics are the biggest and most important fish that God has to fry? so to speak. Friends, our God is indeed awesome. He can use a deluded but powerful pagan king to reveal his will and to bring his chosen servant to power. That brings us to our third point. Let's recognize another biblical motif at play. Let's recognize another biblical motif at play. We said before that there are certain words and phrases in the Joseph story that are getting repeated. We noted the repetition of the word pit. 
But Moses goes further back than just the Joseph story. He points us back to the life of Abraham. And so in Genesis chapter 22, that's the text that tells us of Abraham's offering up of Isaac. And then when Abraham goes to offer him up and God provides the the ram caught in the thicket instead, and God is renewing and restoring the covenant promises that he made to Abraham. Remember, he reiterates the promise that his offspring will be as numerous as the sands of the seashore. And then when we get to chapter 41, verse 49, that phrase gets used again, but it's not talking about offspring. It's talking about grain. So in Genesis chapter 41, verse 49, we read this. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. What's going on? What's going on is that Moses is using this repetition to remind us that our God is a God of covenant faithfulness. And he's going to show his faithfulness to the promises that he made to Abraham in ways that we cannot even imagine. This is God's hesed at work. God is using his chosen servant to save and to deliver the world. Normally when we think of that, we think in terms of our salvation as we should But in Genesis chapter 41, God is using it to point us to Jesus, but he wants us to understand that this salvation isn't just spiritual. In this particular instance, it's a physical salvation. It's a salvation from famine. And then in chapter 41, verse 57, we're told that all the earth comes to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. And in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, as God is reiterating his covenant promises to Abraham, he reminds him that through Abraham and through his offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see what God is doing? God is using his chosen servant to show his covenant faithfulness in a way that brings salvation into his world. And that's why when we come to the end of that beautiful story about Jesus and the Samaritan woman and the Samaritans invite Jesus to stay for him after two days and they're having a kind of, you know, kind of campfire debriefing session after they've been interacting with Jesus and they say to the Samaritan woman, hey, we think it's great that you came to us and said he's told me everything I've ever done, but we want you to know that we believe in him now because we know He is the Savior of the entire world. Do you see what God is doing? Do you see the motif that he's giving us? God saves the world through his chosen servant. That's how God works. In Genesis 41, it's an actual physical salvation that he brings about through his chosen servant, Joseph. And through Joseph, the world is delivered. The world is saved for this famine is severe over all the earth. Well, by the time we get to the Lord Jesus, early in his ministry, the Samaritans acknowledge 
This is God's Messiah. This is His chosen one. And through Him, God will save the world. Friends, this is a text that tells us about the future, but not about who's going to win the World Series. Doubtful, increasingly, that it will be my white socks, which grieves me. But it's a text that tells us how God is going to bring about his work of saving the world that he has created. In a display of his covenant faithfulness, he's going to do it through his chosen servant. And this morning, as we come to the table, we have a beautiful picture of God's work through his servant on our behalf. Let's remember that in the table, the most fundamental confession that God is making is this. I am your God and you are my people. And the table reminds us that through God's chosen servant, God has saved us. It's interesting then, isn't it, that he uses a meal, that he uses a table for the physical salvation that he used Joseph to bring about. He uses a physical sign to now speak of the spiritual salvation that we have the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your covenant faithfulness. Thank you for uh, the way in which you are at work in our world. And we bless you that uh, you use your chosen servant to bring about salvation. Father, thank you for the way that Joseph points us to Jesus. Thank you for Jesus' obedience. And Father, we would just dare to ask this morning that as your people, uh, we would find tangible ways to show our trust in your providence. That we would keep using our gifts. That we would keep exercising our calling. And that we would understand when you call us to wait, even though we don't like it, Father, that you are doing something in us while we wait that will make us look more like your son, the Lord Jesus. We pray this now in his name. Amen.